Welcome to The Aggregate, hosted by Kinetic Ventures. This is a project based on the learnings from Startup DNA and the founder's journey. On today's episode, we talk with Derek Manoud. Derek is the CEO of Coral, my favorite Canadian, and one of the smartest people I've ever met. We discuss his journey, how he runs multiple companies like Elon Musk, as well as even get into a brief discussion on crypto. All right, Derek, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, uh, it'd be great if you could give the listeners a little bit of background on yourself, where you came from, your work history, and uh, then we'll get into a little bit about Coral. Great, yeah. So my background is a little bit unorthodox in the sense that I grew up in a fairly rural place. Um, under 400 people live there. It's mostly like a summer town. Um, so most of my time was spent basically on the internet or outside of nature. Um, not a whole lot of social or urban interactions. Um, but in a way that kind of shaped me to who I am. I focused a lot on learning and building when I was younger. And I've always been attracted to those kind of two tenants. Um, and then after I kind of left the small town, I ended up going to school at uh, the University of Guelph, which is um, known for like animal and veterinary sciences and very like biologically hippie individuals that go there. But uh, I was someone that got attracted to math early on. And so I studied math for my undergrad degree um, there. And then I stuck around another year to do a master's uh, also in math uh, with a focus on a few different verticals within it. So quantum information theory, which is essentially, you know, the study of statistical systems underlying quantum computers, um, evolutionary computation, which is in a way uh, essentially using statistical models or other mathematical um, structures in order to predict um, a variety of different objective uh, or problems um, out there. Uh, I focus on mathematical finance as well. So the great thing about mathematical finance is that it obviously has uh, a wide range of applications into banking and, and credit and fintech, and we'll get into that. Um, and what I have ended up doing after my university career is moving to Scotiabank, which is a top five bank here in Canada. They've got uh, presence in over 150 different countries around the world. Um, and I did credit model validation for them. So our role is really to validate uh, all of the models that the bank uses to adjudicate credit, uh, whether it's when you're applying for a credit card or whether you're a multinational organization looking for millions of dollars worth of um, funding. So quite uh, an interesting experience for myself. I ended up walking across the street, which was uh, Bay Street uh, in Toronto, to KPMG where I led the quant team in financial risk management. So at KPMG, what we really were um, was the, the quant SWAT team for the firm. We had a number of different clients uh, across Canada, and our focus was really to solve any of the statistical or mathematical-related problems that the firm had. So we worked with governments, uh, financial institutions, uh, hedge funds. Uh, it, it really didn't matter. Anything that was um, technical in nature would get sent to our group. So um, part of that work was, you know, myself building out uh, 
models to detect illegal insider trading on equity exchanges, um, building credit models for banks, um, building automated validation software for some of our clients or even the firm itself. And then after that, I went private. So I started my own consultancy firm focusing on servicing clients in Canada as well as the Caribbean and parts of the U.S. Uh, I had amassed a client list of close to three dozen different uh, financial institutions. Um, and then that's really when I started to realize that there was a significant issue that many of these clients had and related to getting access to data on small businesses in order to make financing decisions. And that's really where the origin story of Coral began. Very cool. Yeah, I actually didn't know that about your education background. Uh, <laughs> what is a, a, uh, a degree in math even look like? Uh, yeah, so a degree in math is, um, it was, it's not almost like a choose your own adventure in many ways, because yeah. there's two things that you could do um, in math. You either become like a professor and eventually you work with numbers and abstract concepts for the rest of your life. And um, it's very like academically minded. And as many people, if they get so deep in the weeds in math, they either like become completely antisocial or crazy, one of the two. Um, the other side of it is on the industrial or the applied side where you essentially find ways to use math or even statistics in order to um, improve um, we'll call it problems. Um, so find solutions to different things. Like it's very multidisciplinary. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't want to pigeonhole myself into just one discipline because I liked a lot of different fields of study. And so math just gave me the tool set in order for me to essentially apply that in different verticals coming out of university. But yeah, a lot, a lot of pure math, a lot of applied math, a lot of computer science, uh, all those fun subjects. Cool. Yeah, I do remember uh, when Kinetic, when I, we were first connected prior to us investing, uh, I've tried to keep it as short as possible when I was on the phone with you because I didn't want to get any hard questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're definitely one of the, the smarter founders that I had uh, talked to at that point. Uh, and so was uh, Scotiabank, was finance a passion of yours or is that more opportunity based on location and education? Yeah, well, I was really looking for a way to apply the math training that I had in a discipline that it seemed where a lot of other people were applying it. And so if, if you look at what types of problems are tractable and quite solvable, um, you know, you, you can go to physics and there's experimental design. You can, you can solve problems in different domains where you kind of already know the outcome. But the markets always really fascinated me in the sense of that you couldn't just like plug in a formula and get the answer where the stock's going to be the next month. Um, and it's, it's similar in credit. Like it's, everything is probability-based. And so I, I really was attracted to Scotiabank, and in particular risk management and on the credit side, because there were so many factors that could be used to predict someone's credit worthiness. Um, and I felt a lot of what was available wasn't necessarily being used. And I wanted to first understand why credit was the way that credit evolved into over all these many years and then seek opportunities where you can find augmented data sets or other time types of methodologies in order to improve the way that 
we were evaluating these businesses or, or people. And so that it was just more the openness and the unsolved problem aspect of it that really attracted me in the first place. Cool. So all this led you to launch Coral, uh, which Kinetic ended up investing in. Uh, can you give us just a brief description of Coral and its main uh, kind of product? Yeah, so I would describe Coral as a capital as a service provider. And so what we really do is we're a data-driven venture investor. We evaluate businesses on the basis of their data, mostly financial, uh, banking, payment processor, and other sources of information we can find online. And we come up with a score, a due diligence report, um, in order to evaluate, evaluate whether we invest in that business using revenue-based financing. So this is different from traditional equity or debt in the sense that we don't take an equity stake in the company. We're not uh, gunning for a board seat. Um, and on the debt side, we're not taking fees. There's not an interest rate. It's essentially a percentage of revenue that we're taking off the top line of the business until the investment ceases. So it could be anywhere from 1% to 10% of gross revenue that we collect on a monthly basis, and that constitutes our return. And so the important thing to think about when you're evaluating these deals is really more about the revenue profile of the business, their cash flow projections, um, the lumpiness of those revenue sources, the number of customers, the churn, the various different ways that you can evaluate these businesses. But on the surface, what really matters to us is whether or not that revenue number is growing over time. Gotcha. So this was targeted towards certain industries, right? So like maybe less capital intensive up front, less technology heavy. Right? Yeah. So asset light revenue heavy businesses is how we'd like to describe it. And, and these are mostly businesses that operate within the digital economy. Uh, the top two verticals uh, of companies that we see that apply for financing with us are SaaS and e-commerce. Um, and, and largely the reason is because more than 90% of those two businesses generate the revenue online. So it's easy to track. Um, and at the same time, they don't have a lot of that capex like you were describing. Mm -hmm. So how would you compare yourselves to ClearBank or lighter capital, as I, th I think those are probably the two most well-funded revenue-based lending uh, platforms. Exactly. So on the ClearBank side, uh, they often offer a shorter duration instrument. So you can think of the average lifespan of their investment to be anywhere between 8 to 16 months. And the capital itself um, is what would be known as uh, emerging cash advance. So they're taking a high percentage of monthly revenue. It, it's well north of 25% typically on a monthly basis until a certain multiple is paid back. And that's kind of known as the cap. So as a business, I am giving up, call it 25% of my revenue on a monthly basis until one point. 06 or 1.12 times the amount that I was given in the first place is paid back. And then once that happens, once that cap is hit, the investment no longer exists. On lighter side, um, they often do a little bit longer duration instruments. And so that's more in tune with what Coral does because our off, 
we often will do a 24 month plus on average investment, um, or at least that's how we plan them to be. We give optionality to the businesses if they want to finish the investment early. But on the lighter side, they also use this cap system where essentially what they're doing is they're taking a smaller percentage of revenue on a monthly basis until that eventual cap is paid out. The cap can be a lot higher and you're typically looking at, you know, 1.5, even two times, uh, but it's spanned out over a longer distance. So we're talking one, two, three, even perhaps longer before that cap is hit, depending on the business that they invest in. Um, the way that Coral kind of compares to both of these is we are, you know, a perpetual royalty. Um, it's not per- not non-perpetual like the other two. So we don't have this concept of a cap. What we have is the concept of a buyout, whereby the business can decide when they want to end the investment with us by just paying us back the financed amount, uh, typically plus a premium. And once that's paid back to us, the investment ends. But until that point in time, we'll collect that small percentage of revenue off the top. So on a cash flow basis, we, we require less than ClearBank and less than Lighter. Um, from a duration standpoint, we are uh, typically around the same length as, as Lighter, but um, in many cases, it could be longer. Uh, because the business has the option to end it instead of us. And then on the clear bank side, yeah, we're obviously much longer than an eight to 16 month duration. Gotcha. And then just the sector as a whole revenue based lending, like where does, where do you think that fits in the funding process for startups? Like, is this a complement to venture typically like uh, equity investment a replacement, uh, just a different part of the funding cycle? How do you think, where, where do you guys play in kind of the lifespan of funding just for startups? Yeah, I think it depends on who you ask as well, because for us, we don't really get involved until revenue starts to show up on the income statement. Um, and we look for at least six months of revenue history before we'll even consider a business for eligibility. And so typically these are companies that are past the kind of the pre-seed stage. They've established some type of product Maybe they have product market fit. Um, and then they're looking essentially for some form of growth capital to help scale the business. Um, so for us, we typically come a little bit later stage than what just venture equity would come in at um, because venture could come in at the pre-seed or the seed stage pre-revenue. Um, and so we also come before a lot of the later uh, VC rounds. So Series A, we typically, once a company becomes Series A, they don't necessarily need our type of growth capital, and that's done by design. Um, we would rather be the type of company that invests in a business and helps them get to hit their metrics for future financing. So we see ourselves as complementary in that regard. Um, but at the same time, you can encounter a business where they don't need to raise any equity. They don't need the large amounts of capital to grow. They want to kind of grow at their own pace. And in that sense, just going with revenue-based financing might be the best option for them. We are a lower cost of capital, especially for businesses that do end up uh, foreseeing an exit in their future uh, because the cost of capital 
you know, when calculated over that long period of time, just ends up being much lower on an annualized basis. The counter trade to that is you have to give up cash on a monthly basis. And so as long as you're comfortable with giving up that percentage of cash flow, um, you end up being in a situation where the revenue-based financing instrument uh, can actually fuel your growth and increase your valuation beyond what the capital is, um, those capital costs are. Um, so I see this as complementary. Certain VCs see it as competitive, but um, I think it's important to note that you have an entire capital stack in the business and you should be seeking to optimize that. And the optimal solution in almost all cases is to have some debt, some equity, some hybrid instrument in between. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I view it as complementary too. I, and I think it's been interesting lately with crowdfunding. Uh, while generally, you know, that's equity, you know, based, it, it seems to fulfill the same need uh, like Coral does. Yeah, it's, you know, there's just so much venture money, Series A and post, that there's just this huge gap, I think, between early stage venture investing and later stage that I think revenue-based financing or crowdfunding, there are more things popping up that, uh, and I just, there's, there's just not enough capital there. Um, so I would agree with that too. Um, so how did you, you did one of the more interesting things. I don't No one else in our portfolio has done this, but while running Coral, you ended up, spinning out some of the technology and creating an entirely new entity. Uh, can you talk about that a bit? Cause it was, you know, we haven't seen it. I, I mean, I know it's happened and maybe, maybe we have seen it just at super small scale, but I think what you've been able to accomplish is uh, pretty amazing. And just something that I don't know if I've talked to another fund that's going to have this uh, experience. Yeah. So I think the way that I view company building in a sense is not, linear. Um, I almost try to apply this mathematical framework to the way that the company evolves over time. And it's often the case where you have multiple products within your company. Um, you just can't see it on the surface. And what we did implicitly during the building stage of Corals, uh, I think a lot of people don't realize this. It took a couple of years for us to get from you know, the concept stage to a launch. And that was by design because we wanted to be able to build out these different components of software and then, in a sense, Frankenstein them together in order to achieve what we wanted to achieve. And so the byproduct of that is we have these different components within the software stack that in itself are independent uh, products that could form their own businesses. And so... When COVID hit, at, at about the beginning of 2020, um, we started to realize a couple of things. One, we started to get a lot more inbound into Coral about companies, venture firms, banks, etc., wanting to use our technology in order to help them move their lending operations online. Because they realize that we're not getting bodies in banks or branches. And so how can we increase our customers? And the way to do that is by having an online application. So we had a choice. Do we support this kind of new market opportunity by taking the Coral software, which is 
could be classified as lending as a service? Uh, do we start selling that to all these different institutions? Uh, or do we focus on something else that we had built, which is what I would describe as data as a service, um, which is the underlying uh, infrastructure software that we had built to collect data from multiple different sources, clean it, normalize it, and provide that through an API so that Coral could actually do its financing and evaluate deals uh, appropriately. Um, but now do we offer that to others? And so through some type of market exercise that we went through speaking to some of these inbound uh, requests, uh, we discovered that really the, the easiest way and the largest way to kind of scale out a new business line would be to take that data as a service product and spin it into a, a new company. So at the beginning of 2020, I started meeting with uh, a few folks, which are relatively well known in the Toronto market. Um, and I had found a, an operator that uh, I was comfortable with working long-term uh, and had a great background in terms of multiple exits. Um, he was someone that was familiar with the FinTech space in general. Um, and I proceeded to partner up with him um, on around this idea that this product, this data as a service product would form the foundation of this newly built company. And so uh, my partner, we made him CEO and uh, we started to kind of get to work around commercializing the product, getting a brand and a site up, building the team with some of those early engineers, uh, similar to what we had did uh, at, at Coral to begin with. So the way that I viewed this problem from the beginning was really, it's not kind of all or nothing. Uh, you don't always have to be focused on one idea at the same time. Often it's the case where if you allocate time and resources to a number of different uh, products, you'll end up finding that the overall value that you generate is much higher. Now, I, I won't say this is the best approach for everyone um, because it can be hard to juggle multiple companies at the same time. Um, but there's some there's some frameworks that you can follow that make make things a little bit easier for yourself. And I'd say that context switching is uh, definitely a startup killer. You want to be able to figure out what's the most important things to get done in a day, a week, a month, a quarter, uh, and then focus solely on those things without breaking concentration. Um, and so, I mean, look at some of the largest founders out there. Uh, Elon Musk, he spends Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at Tesla, Monday, Friday at SpaceX. And he's able to kind of delineate both of those different uh, roles that he has. Jack Dorsey does a similar thing on Twitter and Square. Um, so it, it is possible if, as long as you are applying strict rule sets around the usage of your own time in order to do something like this. And when I look at it today right now, Rails, which is the name of this, this new company, uh, it's obviously grown to be quite a success in just the past year or so. Um, but I see there being potential within Coral for a number of other types of companies as because of the way that we had built it out from the beginning. Yeah, I was, I was going to go Elon and Jack. So I'm glad uh, you did. Uh, yeah. It's, it was interesting. Cause as an investor, it's like, Oh shit. Right. 
he's not spending as much time on our investment, even though, you know, we're kind of dotted line to rails and, but it's a really interesting, I think to your point, I do think you can create more value and it de-risks even more, right? Like when we think about portfolio concepts, it's all about diversification. So if you have all of this technology, why not have it within separate entities? Mm-hmm. And serving separate markets and separate clients because you you really never know which one will be the most valuable. Yeah, it's a good point. You, you get diversification within your portfolio, but also at the company level. So what, I, it, this is super interesting. How do you and you have said yourself you're a learner, you're a builder. When you were thinking about rails you called an operator. How do you think about building teams in general? And then maybe we'll, we'll dive into specific companies. And But how do you think about you know, your skill set, what you're good at, and building teams around you? Yeah. So in the early days of Coral, I was the CTO. I was not the CEO. And then over time, I, I kind of flipped that position and became more of the CEO and focused on strategy and team building. Um, and I believe the way that I approach uh, team building is, in a sense, I try and find individuals that are going to be additive and have net value greater than zero, essentially. So can they add more value to the institution than, that, than what they extract? And that could be monetary, it could be non-monetary. But the important thing is, is that you're always adding people that you need I find what a lot of people do, or a lot of startups, is that they'll invest in people or just hire people because they have the capital. Um, and this often happens right after a funding round, where they'll just continue to kind of scale up the team, but not really recognizing what they need. And so the process for team building with me starts with identifying the gaps. So I myself am quite technical. I can, you know, program um, I can do the, the technical you know, job of an early startup, but is that really the best use of my time? Um, and lately I've been finding that, yes, I need to be involved at the early stages, but as the companies start to mature, I should reduce the time that I spend actually programming and working on technical problems and then outsource that out to other technical leaders that can dedicate 100% of their time to that. So at the beginning, I'd say my role is, is divided into a number of different things. You know, I'm, I'm X percent, uh, you know, software development or technology, X percent product, X percent marketing, X percent, uh, sales, X percent strategy. Um, and then over time, I take that widespread distribution and I start to find people that can replace those for myself. And so the great thing about rails at the beginning is I found this, operator, the CEO type, that you can embed and have him be the person that kind of runs the show. And then from there, it was a matter of basically, okay, what else do I need? So I've now got that operator piece out of the way. I now need a VP of engineering to take over my engineering requirements. I now need a VP of product to take over my product requirements. I need a VP of sales for sales. Um, And so what I've tried to achieve over over the course of the last year, specifically with Rails, is it's just identifying the gaps to reduce the amount of my time that is spent on these different items. Um, and then from there, build the teams around these different central folks that they're going to be able to manage directly. 
And so that has meant over the last year, we've hired 15 different engineering and product people uh, at Rails. And on the sales and marketing side, we've got, you know, roughly about three to five there. So there hasn't been necessarily um, too much need for me to get involved on sales and marketing and product and engineering because of the way that we've designed this team from the beginning. Um, on the coral side, the way that I think about team building there is, is in a similar way. So if we are to spin off components of our technology into new businesses, um, we'd apply the same formula whereby we find the operator, we find the key resources that are needed for that particular business, and then we build around those individuals. In the early days, I think it's very important also to have a bit of a flat structure, um, not to emplace too much hierarchy um, or structure around roles and responsibilities because of how much things can change really quickly. Um, and, you know, things can change because of funding. Um, things can change because of new product uh, or customer features uh, that come in. Um, and you have to be able to react appropriately to that. And in some cases, you may find that your product person is doing a lot of the customer-facing activities um, whereas, you know, the CEO is actually getting involved in engineering decisions. And so you have to be flexible, I think, early on when building these teams. But just don't get ahead of your skis because you see a lot of companies do that where they just hire as many people as possible. And that's not necessarily a signal of growth or progress. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really what you're building underneath the surface. And that will show up in your financial statements at the end of the day. So how do you so how do you identify to talk sales uh, engineers uh, engineering I think is the easiest one it's more mm-hmm. you know, X Y uh, binary can you program in this language versus this what have you built to date uh, how do you Id- identify and then hire for these specific roles I, I think this is the hardest thing that all early stage founders struggle with is they they might not know what they need is like you have a very clear focus on okay these are the missing parts but then how do you go about finding and then evaluating those people yeah so i think data is still very important in this process as well you should be able to find people I mean, this is how I start. So within my network, I know certain people that I've worked with in the past that have a certain skill set that I'm looking for. And, you know, if, if it's sales, then, you know, I'll, I'll look back to all the companies that I had worked with in the past and identify who are those people that I remembered as being kind of the top salespeople. And then the first part of it is just reaching out to them if I believe they're going to be a good fit. Um, and it's either to get them directly or to establish them as a subject matter expertise for that domain and then figure out what are kind of the core tenants that made them successful and then putting that into kind of an ideal custom, uh, client or um, employee profile and then trying to target those individuals. And this exercise starts with going on LinkedIn um, for me. So just figuring out who are those people, first and second degree connections that may exist that I believe would be a good fit based off of those, those qualities, um, those characteristics that we're looking for. Um, when you get to the actual interview process itself, like provided you're able to kind of inspire the person and get them on a, on a call, you've got to be able to explain to them 
you know, why this is going to be one of the better decisions that they make in their life. And that's where it's almost on you to be the salesperson. Um, and I think it's really important that, you know, you, the inspiration will get them in the door, but the compensation will keep them. And so you've got to be able to frame it as, as such where, you know, this is not only going to be uh, a good decision for them because of kind of the enjoyment of the role, but also, you know, if they hit their goals, they're going to be incentivized in order to, you know, get a lot of compensation as a result of that. So when we're talking about salespeople, um, you know, I think Charlie Munger said this, but if, if you show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. And so you want to be able to make sure that every single salesperson that you're bringing on in this case, um, you know, has some type of history of meeting or exceeding their own goals and their own targets. Uh, and provided that's been established and you have that track record and you have reference checks and that can validate everything that they've said, then I think it's just a matter of putting the right framework in place to make sure that they're well compensated to work the 40 plus hours that's going to be required in a startup to be successful. Awesome. Great advice. All right. You mentioned Charlie Munger. My head went completely different direction. Given early stage founder, super technical, really smart. Do you do any trading in the public markets? Just curious from my personal <laughs> perspective. Yeah, I, I definitely, I follow the public markets uh, a lot. Um, I don't necessarily have that much time to do any type of day trading. <laughs> no. um, I'm not on Robinhood, you know, yellowing uh, <laughs> stop options, but um, I do follow it. And I would say my approach to investing uh, kind of stems from that Benjamin Graham value investing framework, um, but also recognizing that, you know, growth stocks and, you know, innovative companies have the ability to just absolutely leapfrog valuations of, of um, your traditional value investing stocks. So I would say like I'm less active in the public markets, um, but I follow it pretty closely. Um, my interest lies a little bit more on the crypto side, um, just because I believe we're in this massive secular thematic shift away from fiat monetary system and towards a more decentralized financial system. And I just think the sheer volume of capital that's flowing into these markets um, and the return profiles uh, of a lot of the crypto assets. It's just way higher than what you could get in, in equity markets right now, given where valuations are at. Um, I mean, even looking at bond markets, interest rates are at all time lows. Um, inflation has hit pretty much all asset classes. Um, even commodities have started to, to rise. And I think we're at the early innings of where commodities are headed in the future. But um, for stocks and uh, I just, I'm waiting and seeing what's going to happen with that for the most part. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I sure. It's a lot of similar views uh, with you. Uh, so yeah, I knew we were going to get to crypto. So this is, this is great. Uh, I think everyone on, well, maybe not understands, but knows how to buy or trade cryptocurrencies of so Bitcoin, Ethereum, like what else yeah, I, you're super knowledgeable in the space and have taught me some things. Like, what else should people be thinking of, listening to, reading, you know, if they're interested in the space? Because um, I know Bitcoin could double. I, I just think there are maybe other areas for 
growth and return that aren't directly correlated to cryptocurrency. So do you, do you have any, any thoughts, perspective on what else there is when you say the word crypto? Yeah, so there's your large caps or your blue chips, right? You've got Bitcoin, Ethereum, and there's some other that are kind of in the top 10 that serve their, their different use cases. Um, what I'm really excited about right now is this decentralized finance space or DeFi, whereby what what people are building are essentially those underlying protocols uh, or contracts that allow you to build any type of financial interest instrument on top that you can think of. Um, and so Ethereum really started this many years back um, with the advent of smart contracts on top of decentralized um, ledgers or distributed ledgers, whereby if you can create a small program that serves a certain function and you release that into the world, um, you can interact with that smart contract as you know a self-sovereign user on the Ethereum network. And that smart contract can serve many purposes. You know, in, during the 2017 ICO craze, a lot of them were kind of valueless and really just more of a token that represented some type of utility on some network. But nowadays what we're starting to see is these smart contracts can represent real world assets. They can represent uh, legal rights or claims to different things. Um, we've seen NFTs, non-fungible tokens, become quite popular in the last few months. Um, and that on the surface can be quite speculative as an asset class. And I wouldn't recommend people jump into that without doing their due diligence. Um, but essentially what that is, is just the right um, to ownership or some type of claim on a digital asset, like a JPEG or a video clip or things like that. What I'm far more excited about in the DeFi space is the ability to have these real world assets that we know about, you know, whether it's a home or whether it's, you know, infrastructure like bridges um, or even like a legal claim to the royalties on a startup investment. Taking a concept like that, turning that into a digital asset that represents ownership and then allowing that to be part of this decentralized financial market uh, there's a lot of applications and implications because of that. So Maker is the name of a protocol um, that is creating and has created what's known as DAI, which is a USD stablecoin. And it's pegged one-to-one -to, -one to the US dollar. Uh, it's backed by a number of assets, um, just like any, for example, um, bank would have to have assets on their balance sheet in order to offset these liabilities. Um, and right now, almost 99% or more than 99% of Maker's collateral is based in what's known as digital assets. So cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ethereum. Um, less than 1% is actually backed by real world assets. So I think what we're beginning to see right now is this is just the early innings of the shift towards having more real world assets getting digitized and being able to create liquid markets for them where liquid markets did not exist before and creating fractional ownership where fractional ownership didn't know, uh, what did not exist before. And Maker's just one example of kind of the innovations that's being done in the space. You have Uniswap, 
which is a decentralized protocol or liquidity layer for making these trades between different assets. You have Aave, which is a protocol for lending and borrowing. So let's say you wanted to lend out your crypto. You didn't want to sell it because you don't want to hit the capital gains. Um, you could lend it out and to a smart contract and then re- retrieve on the other end of that transaction uh, stablecoin, USD, and you'd pay an interest rate you know, for the duration that you've held that loan. But uh, in the meantime, you wouldn't have to sell your collateral or your crypto. And so when you layer on these different ideas on top of each other, you basically have no need for a centralized banking system anymore because you can achieve everything you want to achieve without a central party. That's the arbiter of truth. What you have to trust in this case is that these programs that have been built and audited um, do operate in the way that they are originally intended. Cool. Uh, is there, if people are listening to this, like, what the hell is he talking about? Uh, how do you learn about it? Like, what would you recommend complete novice to consume information and start to make their own opinion? And, so, uh, yeah, yeah, generally. Reddit's a great source, uh, and you can really dive down the rabbit hole if you want to um, there. There's a website as well that, at least on the DeFi side, will get you up to speed called DeFiPulse.com. The one thing I would caution is like there's a lot of great YouTube sources out there. The long-form podcasts uh, are fantastic. Some of the short-term pump-and-dump technical trading uh, websites and, and folks that have their own YouTube channels, I wouldn't advise you get information from there. Um, it tends to be more speculative in nature, but there's uh, Andreas Antonopoulos. Um, if you want to learn about Bitcoin, he's he's a fantastic resource. Lots of videos online there. Uh, Michael Saylor um, ha- has been a, the longest serving public CEO um, in the U.S. and happens to have made uh, more than a billion dollar investment into crypto over the last six months um, on his own corporate balance sheet. And he is an avid spokesperson and has a ton to say on the topic. And he's a great resource to, to look up. Um, Robert Breedlove is a, he'll get your mind uh, thinking in terms of the different <laughs> applications of what Ethereum can do and what Bitcoin has uh, achieved to date. Um, and there's uh, Chris Black, if uh, you're looking for someone on the DeFi side. Uh, he has a host of different videos that go deep into how to use and the different um, uh, specific technical aspects of many of these protocols. So I'd say there's a ton of resources out there. Um, the number one spot that I go to for all my crypto news is on crypto Twitter. So um, you just put in the hashtags of whatever token you're looking to get information on into Twitter, and you'll find a ton of people um, debating with each other over the pros and cons of both. But you're going to learn something at the end. Cool. Yeah, I, I use Twitter a lot for uh, pretty much anything uh, I yeah. want to learn. All right. So one final question. Let's say Coral Rails did not exist. Is there a problem or like a business idea that you've been thinking about short-term, long-term that you would want to solve? Yeah. Uh, so this goes to 
uh, so in, in the in the DeFi space, obviously there's there's Maker, the central bank, Aave, Lending Protocol, Uniswap, Liquidity Protocol. Um, there's a number of other protocols as well out there that are solving these different use cases. Um, what I would really like to see or start is a company focused on taking real world assets, improving the digitization process of that to make the user experience as easy as possible. So you can get these large institutions like the Goldman's, the JP Morgan's, the Black Rocks and other asset managers to take their existing portfolios and move them into the digital marketplace. Um, they obviously get the benefits of the fractional ownership. They get the benefits of liquidity. They get the benefits of leverage from the crypto side. Um, and it also democratizes access to a lot of different asset classes that traditional investors um, would not necessarily get access to, especially retail investors. So I think my focus would be on building the platform that allowed institutions or otherwise the ability to take real world assets, which is you know, trillions of dollars worth of assets, to move them into this new uh, decentralized financial monetary system. And as we make that transition over time and have all those assets available, there's really no stopping our imagination of what could be possible. Um, and the next evolution of that is, is what I see um, would be where you don't have to necessarily denominate your life in U.S. dollars anymore. Um, you can denominate it in what other asset classes that you really want. So if you open up your digital wallet, you'll own, for example, some digital USD, maybe some digital yen. You'll have real estate exposures. Um, you'll have commodities, you'll have equities, you'll have bonds. It's all digital in nature. And because of the benefits that you get from uh, these decentralized markets, you can now easily, quickly, and cheaply trade those out across each other. So let's say you're making a payment for something to a merchant. You can pay in whatever currency you want. You can pay in fractional Apple stock if you really needed to. And then on the other end, because they're using this Uniswap protocol, um, it would get converted instantly into whatever asset class that they want. So we now essentially have the choice and the freedoms to be able to build and compose our own life around a portfolio of assets that pertain to us as individuals, as opposed to being uh, essentially locked into what a central bank policy may determine for us. So that's the world I think we're moving towards and doing anything that can help us facilitate that transition as quickly as possible is where my focus would go. Cool. Well, you can pencil kinetic in for that endeavor. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Great. Well, thanks, Derek. This was awesome. Uh, I certainly learned a lot about you and a lot of other industries. So I appreciate you joining. Great. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thank you for listening to The Aggregate, hosted by Kinetic Ventures. Kinetic Ventures is an early-stage VC that is disrupting venture capital by replacing the pitch with an automated, data-driven approach. What's the benefit? A completely unbiased investment process that allows funders to spend more time building their business. To learn more about Kinetic or apply for funding, 
please visit us at www.kinetic.ventures.